بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين نحمده ونستعينه ونستنصره ونستجيره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونستهديه ونستشهد ونستشهد به هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو الحي القيوم رب السماوات والأرض نور على نور ونكبر الله أكبر كبيرة الله أكبر كبيرة الله أكبر على كل من طغى وتجبر الله أكبر في السماوات وفي الأرض الله أكبر في الأزل ونصلي ونسلي ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من تبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله رب العالمين We are in the month, we start of course first by supplicating God in the way that we should supplicate God, for God is the anchor of our life, the giver of meaning, the giver, the giver of all that is good and beautiful. The source of all light and the source of all beauty in existence. Those who re put their trust in their Lord are the wise ones because inevitably they will be in the hands of the Lord in the final day. In the hereafter, when life, their own lives run out. And because ultimately nothing unfolds, nothing unfolds outside of the dominion of the Lord and outside of the Lord's sovereignty. We are in the month of Shaban, preparing for the coming of the month of Ramadan. The month that for every Muslim is the, pin, the, the 
the crux of the entire year that a Muslim lives in, lives through. In many ways, Ramadan is the marker by which we count our lives, how many Ramadans we've lived through. And in the month of Ramadan, it is not just fasting and not just the giving of alms. The fasting, the increased prayers, the giving of charity and of sadaqah are all part of a dynamic by which we undertake for a month each year to look inwardly and to think about the year we've lived and to reflect upon the years that will come if Allah wills it and we have more years to come. It is a month where we in an intensive exercise seek to discipline the body, increase our relationship of control as to, or, or at least augment our ability to control our urges, our instincts, and think and reflect deeply about the years that have passed, and especially the last year from Ramadan to Ramadan, and make resolutions. In, in, in many ways, it is sort of your review board, your, the, the month in which you review what you've done and you think about the trajectory of your life and where you're going. This Ramadan will be coming in rather exceptional circumstance. It, there is the internal review that a Muslim must undertake about their own beliefs, their own convictions, their own actions, their own conduct. And there's also the external review in which the Muslim, a Muslim looks at the state of the Islamic world, the ummah, generally, the, the, the community of Muslims. Of course, starting with their most immediate community, the community that is closest to them, and then extending outwards to the reach a point of reflection about the entire Muslim Ummah all around the world. Of course, you must start locally and extend outwards. But they also should reflect beyond the Muslim Ummah about the state of our world itself and always the attitude of a Muslim is 
what can I do within what is available to me and what is possible to me? What is it that I can achieve? What other can I that I can add within what is available to me and what is possible to me? What is rather exceptional on this Ramadan is that the entire world is confronting a global threat, challenge. This Ramadan is one in which those who are um, those who are afraid of themselves will find no escape from themselves. And those who are easily distracted might find it much harder to be distracted. It is a Ramadan that I think none of us imagined that we would be confronting in our lifetime. No public gatherings, no collective iftar, no prayer in the mosque, no taraweeh. It is a challenge, but also an opportunity. An opportunity to think inwardly and to worship God away from public scrutiny and away from the gossip of communities to truly reflect within and to truly contemplate your place, my place, and our place in the world we live in. There's a very practical aspect, though, to each Ramadan, but to, to this Ramadan in particular. No one who is interested in the state of Islam or in the religion of Islam, no Muslim who is invested in, in what happens to Muslims around the world can ignore the fact that this Ramadan, for so many Muslims in the world, will be a very hard and challenging one. As you are isolated in your own home, or at least for many American Muslims and many Muslims in Europe and so on in Canada, and even many Muslims around the world, as you are isolated at home, you cannot 
forget that this Ramadan, there are literally hundreds and thousands of Muslims around the world who will confront this month, this coming month, in severe hardship. And what I'm, those that I'm talking about are Muslims who are jailed unjustly and who have been oppressed around the world. The coronavirus cannot make us forget, cannot allow us to forget the Uyghur Muslims who will confront this Ramadan in concentration camps after many of them have confronted illness and will confront illness and death and suffering. And we know absolutely or next to nothing about them except what has been leaked to us. We cannot forget these people in our prayer. We cannot forget that this Ramadan, there are thousands of Muslims and scholars like Salman al-Oda who will yet again have to contend not just with fasting under impossible circumstance, political prison, but also confronting the threat of corona and the pandemic. When Ramadan comes, and I've said this before, like a barometer for the Muslim Ummah, it's as if Ramadan holds a barometer to take the, the, the to check the well-being of the Muslim Ummah. And when Ramadan comes and finds Muslims suffering a great deal of injustice, a great deal of um, corruption and inequity and disease, from Ramadan to Ramadan is the way that we measure our well-being. Ramadan is never a selfish act as to how simply I can feel better about myself as a Muslim. But it is how I can improve as a Muslim while scrutinizing what I can contribute to the Muslim Ummah and to the world around me. That is the Islamic ethic. That is what Islam is all about. But let's get, what I want to focus on this khutbah though, because we'll have inshallah an opportunity to talk about Ramadan and other aspects of Ramadan. Is the reality that this Ramadan comes where the state 
of Muslims, especially among younger generations, there is a virtual deluge, a flood, a, a um, tidal wave of young Muslims who are confused about their faith, if not entirely skeptical about their faith. A great deal of Muslims who feel that they're not sure about their place in the world, not sure what they are supposed to do with their lives, and if not worse, rather ambivalent about their Islamness, who they are as a Muslim. There is a definite generational gap in this dynamic. Many of these young Muslims are at least skeptical about the earlier generation that raised them if not outright disappointed. Many of these young Muslims look at the generation that raised them and wonder whether that generation has done a horrible job with the lives that they were given because of the state of the Muslim world. Because they look around this younger generation was raised, raised in the age of Islamophobia. This younger generation was raised in an age of social media, mass communications, where information is zipping back and forth and we cannot ignore the fact that the environment in which they were raised is an environment that is colonized by Islamophobic discourses. And when they turn to their parents, or when they think about their parents, Few of these younger generations can confront the older generations with their disappointments. Why have you handed us the world the way it is? Why have you given us a world in which there is so much inequity, in which there is so much bloodshed, in which we are told, and that's assuming that they're raised in a, in a proper Muslim family, we are told religion is very important, but when it comes to especially Islam, if they were raised in a Muslim country, they were raised with despotism, 
injustice, a great deal of hypocrisy. And if they were raised in a non-Muslim country, they were raised with a great deal of discontent, double standards, um, uh, what is the word? Uh, um, I'm looking for a, um, a, 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 a disassociated state in the Muslim community where there's consistently the, 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 the world in which the world of action is very different from the world of speech and platitudes and dogma and so on. I want to though focus on a particular aspect of this, of how we, just reflecting on how we got here and how the Quran speaks to us. And in fact, gives us solace and, and gives us direction in times of fit and like this. This generational gap for the younger generations coming up confusion and disappointment, but for the older generations, very few of those who are older are satisfied with what the world that they in fact are handing over to their children. It is not like the parents think they've done themselves a wonderful job, but and there's no adequate language to tell their children why they are handing over things in the state that they're in. Why is it that the world they give their children has become the way it is? In other words, if parent and child would speak honestly, the parent would be very open with the child they would both be able to, to meet, to mutually disclose their con collective confusions and disappointments about the state of the Muslim world and find that, in fact, many of the feelings of, the, of alienation is something that they share and is something that they can't bond over. Quran is the living prophet. It came to speak to us in every day and age. Allah, in Allah's wisdom, revealed the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad in Mecca and Medina as events unfolded. And the way that the Quran was revealed and what it said to the Prophet ﷺ were intended as a demonstrative living example 
that addresses every day and age to come. I often repeat to myself the beginning verses of Surah Al-Baqarah إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا سَوَاءٌ عَلَيْهِمْ أَنْذَرْتَهُمْ أَمْ لَمْ تُنْذِرُهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ خَطَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَى قُلُوبِهِمْ وَعَلَى سَمْعِهِمْ وَعَلَى أَبْصَارِهِمْ غِشَاوَةٌ وَلَهُمْ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَقُولُ آمَنَّا بِاللَّهِ وَبِالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَمَا هُمْ بِمُؤْمِنِينَ يُخَادِعُونَ اللَّهَ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَمَا يَخْدَعُونَ إِلَّا أَنفُسَهُمْ أَنفُسَهُمْ وَلَا وَمَا يَشْعُرُونَ وما وما يخدعون إلا أنفسهم وما يشعرون في قلوبهم مرض فزادهم الله مرضا ولهم عذاب أليم بما كانوا يكذبون وإذا قيل لهم لا تفسدوا في الأرض قالوا إنما نحن مصلحون ألا إنهم هم المفسدون ولكن لا يشعرون The beginning verses of Surah Al-Baqarah, which addressed the early Muslim community in Medina that confronted an environment that was as hostile to Islam as the world in which we live in today. The early Muslim community in Medina after the Prophet migrated from Mecca to Medina, they were sure the kuffar who were sworn enemies of Islam, the Qurayshis. But that was sort of the easiest part of this challenge. Those who are sworn enemies of the Islamic faith, the polytheists, of Mecca, of Quraysh. Like the day we live in, live in, there are those who are openly hostile to Muslims and openly oppress Muslims. But what was much harder and much more difficult and presented a much more thorough challenge where after the migration to Medina, there were tribes, there were Jewish tribes in Medina that had a complicated and ambivalent relationship with the Prophet and the community of Muslims. On the one hand, there was a formal treaty, formal alliance between the early Muslims and the Jewish tribes of Medina. But on a daily basis, the Jewish tribes of Medina were long-established tribes that over a period of decades have grown accustomed to dealing with the Arab tribes of Medina, Al-Aws al-Khasraj, 
from a position of great superiority. In other words, they, they controlled a lot of the financial market in Medina and dealt with the Arabs of Al-Aus of Khosraj from a position of great superiority. The Jewish tribes were literate tribes. They were educated, while the Arabs of Medina before the migration were largely illiterate and unlettered. And so, and after the Prophet migrates, while there is an official treaty, the constitution of Medina between the Jewish, between Muslim converts and the Jewish tribes, the rhetorical war, the propaganda war between the Jewish tribes and early Muslims never ended. Muslims were always confronting as the new religion on the block, so to speak, a wave of criticisms and a wave of skepticism and doubts from the Jewish tribes of Medina that have been there and are the old people on the block for an intensive campaign. Add to the Jewish tribes a class of native Medinians who were nominal converts to Islam, but were sworn enemies of the Prophet and his followers. So it, again, reflect on the position of the early Muslims in Medina and those that Surah Al-Baqarah addresses. They come to Medina, they have their the sworn enemies of Islam and Quraysh, the external enemy, but they also have the Jewish tribes who feel superior to them, who look at them from as inferiors because they're newcomers to the Abrahamic faith and because the Jewish tribes have for a long claim to have the revelation of Moses and the Torah, well, you know, who, who is this, who are these new people who are saying that we have a revealed Quran? And then there are the natives of Medina who are described as the hypocrites who normally, who pretended to convert to Islam, who uttered the Shahada, but on a daily basis mocked and jeered and made fun of the new religion of Muhammad and his followers. If you think about our current situation, imagine that you are among these pioneering early Muslims. You have external enemies, but within within you have constant social critics who are consistently challenging. And we know that after the revelation of these verses in Surah Al-Baqarah, we also know that things are going to get much, much worse. So what this how does Surah Al-Baqarah address us and speak to us in these circumstances? First, 
This is the book. There is no doubt in it. It is a guide for those who are mindful of God. First, it reminds us. It's as if God is saying, I know that you are going through the hardest time. I know that the road ahead is a difficult one. I know that you exist as an island in a sea of hostility. But if you want to walk through this journey, the starting point, the point of departure, the point that you cannot forgo and overlook is one, this is the book, this is the truth. There is no doubt in it. You have to ask yourself, always at the beginning, a fundamental question, which the Quran, by the way, posits numerous times. It's God, is God's word good enough or not good enough? No one can convince you that this is a book from God unless you are willing to accept the testimony of God. That's an a priori question. If you tell yourself, I am not sure that God is testifying, then you actually don't know if you're a Muslim. If, if you don't really believe that this is God's testimony, then we have a problem from the get-go. But God is assuring you, take God's word that this is the book, there is no doubt. It is a guide for those who are mindful of God, those who live in reverence of God. God is an important part of their existence, perhaps the most important part, who st are steadfast in prayer and spend from their wealth, and spend from the wealth that we provided them. So they are those who believe, those who pray, and those who are generous with God's money, because it's not your money. Those who believe in the revelation sent down to you, to you, Muhammad, and in what was sent before, before you, meaning those who believe in you as the prophet and those who believe in the prophets before you. So who believe in Moses and Jesus and Abraham and so on and so forth. And firmly believe in the life to come, in the hereafter. They are the people who are rightly following their Lord and it is they who shall be successful. Now, having told us what the truth is that should anchor your life, it starts addressing the sources of confusion in the and and fitna, the sources of hot confusion and ambivalence and alienation and displacement in the psyche of the early Muslims and also in our psyche today. 
As for those who are bent on denying the truth, it makes no difference to them whether you warn them or not. They will not believe. God has sealed their hearts and their ears and over their eyes. There is a covering and they will receive terrible punishment. Rest assured that if you, if your relationship to the truth is affected by who believes and who doesn't, if you are the type of person who looks around you in the world and you say, well, I know so many who will never respond to the call of Islam, or I know so many who just, I respect them and I actually look up to them, but it confuses me, it bothers me that they are not Muslim and that they are not open to Islam, very much like the early Muslims. Allah comes and tells you, here's the truth. This is the truth. If you are the type of person who is affected by who believes and who doesn't, in other words, you look up to people and because they are not Muslim, you get infused in turn. Because your best friend is not Muslim, because you're the, the person you admire is not Muslim, because you've talked to this person or that person and couldn't convince him, didn't know this, and this is God speaking to you. They are not Muslim, and they will never be Muslim, because not everyone is open to being Muslim or to ever becoming Muslim. And that, if any part of your psychology is contingent and dependent on that, then know that you have a very hard road ahead of you. Your belief in God cannot be made contingent on your relationship with other human beings because that's a fool's errand. So there are the believers, there are the deniers, and then the most serious category and most dangerous category. There are those, there are some who say, we believe in God and the last day, and yet they're not really believers. They seek to deceive God and the believers, but they only deceive themselves, though they do not realize it. In their, in their heart is a disease which God has increased. And that's because when if, if you seek beauty and goodness in your life, God will help you achieve it. If you seek hypocrisy and ugliness in your life, God will help you achieve it. God enables you to do what you want to do. They will have a painful punishment because they have been lying. When they are told do not cause corruption in the land, they say we are only promoters of peace. But it is they who are really causing corruption, though they do not realize it. And when they are told believe as other people have believed, they say 
Are we to believe just as fools have believed? Surely they are the fools, even though they do not realize it. And then it continues, but let's address this before we... The third category are those who are nominally Muslim. They say Ashadu, they say the Shahada. They call themselves Muslims. They philosophize a great deal about the state that they're in. We, we are, we do good. We're good human beings. Does it really matter that we're not fasting Ramadan? Does it really matter that we don't pray? Or does it really matter that we even, even if they pray, they pray very nominally and very artificially? Or they cheat in their prayers? Or they want to, they, they cheat on fasting Ramadan? Or they do all the ibadat, but they're nominally Muslims when it comes to their ethics and it comes to their morality. So for instance, they fast Ramadan, they wear their hijabs, they do whatever that they're supposed to do, but they do not care about injustice, Muslims who are suffering around the world or in the entire universe. These poor examples of godliness are the ones that are most trying for our children and the new generation. They're the ones that break Muslims from the inside because officially they're Muslim, but their conduct betrays a great deal of ugliness that cannot be reconciled with Islam. The Quran insists on calling these the hypocrites. And in it, the Quran teaches us a very valuable lesson. You want to judge the first category from the second category, from the third category. In other words, you want to identify those who are hypocrites they are identified by their ultimate conduct, not by whatever declarations a human being makes about themselves. Talk is cheap. Look at the effect of their conduct. Do they corrupt or do in fact they do good in the in, First and foremost, in the Muslim community itself. The state 
that we find this Ramadan comes to find Muslims in a in a state that is directly addressed by Surah Al-Baqarah. Quran reminds you that the anchoring point is to know that this is God's book and that this is God's revelation. And to know that God didn't create this world so that everyone could become Muslim and it's not even possible that there will always remain those who are skeptical of God and skeptical of Islam and who reject the message and they will they do not believe and they will not believe. But the third category, the category of those who are officially Muslim but substantively have very little to do with Islam. Recently, I finished two books that left me reflecting again and again about on Surah Al-Baqarah and, and the state and the, the Ramadan that's coming. One of the books by um, I think, uh, David Kirkpatrick is called In the Hands of the Soldiers. If I, let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, yeah David Kirkpatrick In the Hands of the Soldiers. Uh, it, it's about the Egyptian revolution and, and how the Egyptian revolution failed and how the coup in Egypt happened, but I'll tell you why the, the part in it that, that, um, that is relevant to us. A second book that just came out um, simply called, by, uh, it's by um, Ben Hubbard or Hubert, Ben Hubert, simply titled MBS. What's the relation between these two books? I actually recommend that if, if that you read these two books. Ben Hubbard's book portrays the life of Muhammad bin Salman as he rises in power, creates relationships and connections in Washington DC and Europe but in the context of telling us about Muhammad bin Salman, although the book doesn't focus on this, it, it, it touches upon it, you are struck by this young prince who is currently effectively the custodian of Mecca and Medina. Again, Ron Hubbard doesn't focus on this, but mentions it incidentally. The, the extent to which the leader of perhaps the most, most important Muslim country is thoroughly alienated from an, any semblance of 
Islamness. He throws lavish parties that cost millions and millions of dollars, buys a yacht for half a billion dollars, buys a painting for I don't know how much, hundreds of millions of dollars, has parties which he serves foreign diplomats with the most expensive alcohol on the face of the earth, Consistently, in everything he says to non-Muslims in Europe and the U.S. is about appeasing non-Muslims and convincing them that we are worthy, we meaning his people, Saudis, are worthy of their respect but at the same time, having absolutely no regard for the opinion or autonomy or sovereignty of Muslims themselves. The second book, In the Hands of the Soldiers, by David Kirkpatrick, tells a story Again, the author doesn't focus on the story, but it's incidental to his narrative. He tells us how there are key players that were in, there's a, a, a lame duck president, President Obama, lame duck because it's towards the end of his term, he's the second term as a president, he's, we're just waiting to for the new president to be to come into power, President Trump. And this president has aides and senators and secretary, uh, um, secretary of the state, secretary of defense, all these key players who are the if effectively the shakers and makers, the wielders of power. Figures like Chuck Hagel, Paul Rand, uh, uh, James Mattis, uh, Michael Flynn, who have a very strong feelings about what Islam is and it should be, and the basic attitude that these people have that work in the Obama administration, but later on will also work with the Trump administration, is one of absolute hostility towards Islamic faith. Ironically, these people, people like Michael, Michael Flynn, James Mattis, Chuck Hagel, Paul Rand, these rabidly Islamophobic individuals, and even people like um, what's his name, uh, John Perry, uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State during the Obama administration, who, who maybe perhaps is relatively le less Islamophobic, but still, and these 
key players work with the ambassador of the Emirat and the Mohammed bin Zayed administration and work with the ambassador of Saudi Arabia, Yusuf Al-Aytaba and Adil Jabir. And what unfolds is a new paradigm that will be officially in power in the Trump administration, a new paradigm in which Islamophobes, Islamophobes, and when I say Islamophobes, I mean many of them, like Michael Flynn, who in his book, Field of Fight, is very open about it and tells you the story very openly and honestly. Read that book if you haven't read it. That he's a devout Christian evangelist. He thinks Islam is evil and flawed, and he wants Muslim leaders to put in power Muslim leaders who also share his belief that Islam is evil and flawed. And these key players work with the ambassador from the Emirates and work with the ambassador from Saudi Arabia to bring a very influential Muslim ruler into power, that's Abdel Fattah al-Sisi of Egypt. Abdel Fattah al-Sisi himself is friends with Michael Flynn. And what unfolds here is that many of the leaders of the so-called Muslim world not only receive their education in the United States, but often are trained in places like the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., which has a rapidly Islamophobic faculty and point of view. And when the people that are placed in power in the Muslim world, people like Muhammad bin Sal, MBS, uh, and Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, and Muhammad bin Zayed, MBZ in the Emirat, their view and understanding of, of, of what Islam is, is deeply influenced by this Islamophobia. Does it matter? Well, in so many ways, it does. And let me just unpack it for a second. Notice that someone like Muhammad bin Zayed, last Ramadan, hosted for an entire month a Muslim intellectual like Shahroor, I don't call him an intellectual. To me, he's a... Shahroor, who spent, who spent an entire career deconstructing Islam from the inside. According to Shahroor, there are no five pillars. You don't have to fast Ramadan. Zina is okay as long as you don't do it in public. The complete dismantling of Islam from the inside. This man was hosted and celebrated and given awards by Muhammad bin Zayed in the Emirat. Someone like Ahmad Hassan Qabanji, who mocks the Quran, 
who mocks the idea of God being light upon light, who mocks Ayat al-Kursi, who mocks the idea of the hereafter and hellfire, the Jannah and Nar as backwards and barbaric, someone like that was invited, hosted, and celebrated and awarded in the Emirat. The point is, imagine the following as we confront this coming Ramadan and reflect about, about on our fate. Someone like Muhammad bin, Sal, uh, bin Salman, MBS of Saudi Arabia, spent on a yacht or spent on a painting the money that he spent on a single yacht, if it was given to Muslim institution to fight and combat Islamophobia, defeat what our children would be exposed to around the world would be very different. Reflect on this. If the money that Saudi Arabia and the United States has spent so far on the institution in, in, uh, in Umm al-Qura called Merkaz al-I'tidal, an institution that supposedly combats extremist thought, if that money would have been invested in organizations in the West that combats Islamophobia, we would be living in a very different world. While you read these books and you find that what was spent on a single night of partying by MBZ and MBS would be sufficient to sustain 10, 20, 30 scholars for a lifetime taking care of all their needs. Why am I focusing on this aspect at this time? Because I believe the plight we are going through with corona is a warning. A warning. I believe that the least we owe, we owe our children is an explanation for how we got where we've got. The least we owe our children is to tell them who the hypocrites are and who, who is a sworn enemy of Islam and who are the cause of the illness and mal and, and malaise in Islam, who the hypocrites who work with the, the superpowers in the world nominally as Muslims, but in truth sworn enemies of this religion. In the Arab world, they call Muhammad bin Zayed of the Emirates Shaitan al-Arab, the devil of Arabs. And it is very much true but where it makes a difference is that these individuals have given, have empowered the Islamophobes in the West in ways 
that will affect generations to come. And don't kid yourself. I don't care who you are, regardless of how much you think of yourself as a free, independent, autonomous intellectual, your psychological makeup, your very attitudes towards something as simple as, do I think praying five times a day is a pleasure or a burden? Do I think fasting Ramadan is rational or irrational? Do I want to get close to God or not close or not get close to God? Do I, would I rather spend some time listening to watching something about the life of the prophet or playing video games? You're very it's psychology, your psychological attitudes is shaped regardless of how much you think you're an autonomous thinker is shaped by the mass media that surrounds you everywhere. And the people who control this mass media are people closely allied with MBS, MBZ, and Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. So in other words, you owe your children an explanation. Why is it that whatever you say about your religion is not enough to combat the deluge of skepticism and doubt that is thrown at them from everywhere about their identity as a Muslim. But most of all, and this is what Surah Al-Baqarah persistently teaches us, raise their ch your children. Raise your children that what happens in Mecca and Medina, what happens in the Muslim world is their business and that they should dream of the day when they become influential enough in American politics so that our government doesn't support the likes of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed. So teach your children that you owe it to your fellow Muslims that you grow up and you influence things in Washington, D.C. so that it supports those who are just and who are moral and who are ethical. Look at the way the U.S. deals with Israel. It doesn't deal with Israel on the principle of money. It deals with Israel on the principle of ethics. We like you. We stand by you whether you can give us money or not. At a minimum, it should not be people like Michael Flynn and Stephen Bannon who decides U.S. policy towards the Muslim world and who decides who gets to rule the Muslim world and in turn decides whether Muslim money goes to supporting Islamophobia or fighting Islamophobia. Forgive me for going over. It's a difficult and complicated topic and a topic that we cannot confront this next Ramadan and let, yet let another Ramadan pass without achieving some progress in honesty and transparency about our Muslim institutions and Muslim condition and Muslim reality.
اللهم اعف عنا اللهم اغفر لنا اللهم ارحمنا اللهم اهدنا لأقرب من هذا رشد يا علي عظيم Allah forgive us grant us wisdom peace and beauty help us help fellow Muslims ya Rabbil Alameen help us be better representatives of Islam, of Islam and help us honor our faith and honor you God wherever we are and wherever we may be of course Salah